Well, good evening, uh, everybody. Uh, firstly, uh, let me uh, welcome you to this L LSE Ideas and LSE Contemporary Turkish Study Group public debate on uh, Turkey in the world. Part of the reason for holding this, although not the most important, of course, is that we've just recently produced a pamphlet LSE Ideas called Turkey's Global Strategy, and I've been told to tell you all in no uncertain entrepreneurial terms that you can get it outside for the reduced rate of £5. Uh, that's only one reason for holding this event this evening. The other one, of course, is to debate both a very important country and a very important country which has just come out of very important elections held on the 12th of June uh, of this year, the 17th general Turkish election. The result, as I'm sure you're all aware, was clear-cut. 49.91% uh, voted for the AKP, the Justice and Development Party. This was the third victory in a row for Mr. Erdogan. It was a remarkable uh, development and one which, of course, establishes him as one of the most successful politicians in recent modern Turkish history. The goal tonight, or our aim tonight, is not just to debate the election, important though that clearly is and will be, for Turkey's future, but also to discuss Turkey after the election, what it will mean for Turkey, uh, what it will mean for its own region, and from our point of view as well, what it will mean for Turkey's relations with the European Union and the European relations uh, with, with Turkey. I'm very pleased uh, to welcome two excellent speakers here this, tonight, Professor Shevket Pamuk, who is Chair of Contemporary Turkish Studies at the European Institute, who has taught at various universities in Turkey and the United States. And I'm very pleased to welcome Fadai uh, Hakura, I hope I pronounced that correctly, who's manager of the Turkey Project at Chatham House, uh, where he has been an associate since 2005. I think it's going to be a wonderful discussion tonight, and I hope we get a terrific uh, question and answer session uh, as well. The first speaker will be Shevket Pamuk, Professor Pamuk, who will speak on some of the economic dimensions of, of Turkey's foreign policy and some of the political developments within Turkey itself. And then Fadi will follow by discussing the future of Turkey's relationship with the European Union and European Union's relationship with Turkey. I wonder if we could give a round of applause to our two speakers and call now on Professor Pamuk to begin the proceedings tonight. Pamuk. Uh, good evening. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Cox, uh, for the introduction. Um, I want to remind you uh, about the report again, LSE Ideas, the editor, Nick Kitchen, and the uh, eight editors, including Hadi, have produced an excellent and very insightful report on Turkish foreign policy. I do want to congratulate both the authors and LSE Ideas for the successful completion of the project. I hope they will do more on Turkish, uh, on Turkey and re things related to Turkey. Now, uh, I am not an author of the report. Fadi is part of the team and he will, uh, I'm sure, discuss uh, a bit of the content of the report. In my comments, I would like to focus on two themes which have not received the attention they deserve in the recent debates on Turkish foreign policy. 
Turkey is more independent and more assertive foreign policy is often linked to the end of the Cold War and more recently to the weakening of relations with the European Union and the fading of the EU anchor. Now both of these are undoubtedly true, but the emphasis on these themes alone, I am afraid, often misses a more nuanced view of Turkish foreign policy in the last decade. What I want to do is to focus, A, on the contribution of the economy to Turkish foreign policy, and B, the linkages between domestic politics and foreign policy. Now, both of these themes appear in the LSE Ideas report, but I want to offer a somewhat different perspective on each of these. Let me begin with the economy. It is a cliche by now that Turkey's economic growth during the last decade has supported this increasingly more independent foreign policy. Well, I am not so sure it is economic growth per se that has supported Turkish foreign policy. Actually, Turkey's record with economic growth in the last decade has often been exaggerated. From 2002 to the present, that is the last decade, average increase in GDP per capita has been no more than 3% per annum for reasons that I cannot get into for reasons that I could, whose details I cannot discuss here, but basically the fact that Turkey's savings rate is very low and additional growth means borrowing from abroad. Economic growth in Turkey is unlikely to be significantly higher in the near future. So as a result of this moderate levels of economic growth in the last decade, Unemployment has been and will remain relatively high in the years ahead. At more than 12%, unemployment rate in the urban areas is actually higher today than it was more than a decade ago. So I would argue that what contributed to Turkey's more independent foreign policy in the last decade is actually two other economic dimensions and I want to mention them separately. First, of the, first Turkey's economic success in the last decade is related less to economic growth but more to establishing macroeconomic stability. Let us remember that only 10 years ago, in the year 2001, after a decade of political instability and large budget deficits, during which Turkish economy experienced very high rates of inflation, the public debt in Turkey in the year 2001, had approached 100% of GDP. 
Um, in my opinion, the economic success of AKP lies not in job creation, less in economic growth, but more in maintaining large budget surpluses during most of the last decade, which brought down this external debt from about 100% of GDP to 40% of GDP, uh, a, a ratio which is uh, lower than most EU countries, if not the lowest in, the, in Europe today. Again, it was only 10 years ago that Turkey needed a large loan from the IMF to deal with its severe financial crisis. In contrast, with a much smaller debt two years ago, the AKP government was confident enough to refuse to renew the standby agreement with the IMF, despite the global crisis. <clears throat> Obviously, when you don't have to worry about your debt, when you don't, have to, you don't need the good graces of the IMF, it is a lot easier to think about pursuing an independent policy with respect to Iran, and that's precisely what happened. With hindsight, as many countries in Europe are struggling today with debt problems, this AKP strategy of making uh, macroeconomic stability the number one priority in the economic affairs and reducing the debt uh, has certainly, and certainly looks today like a good choice. Now, my other point about economic dimension concerns the opening of the Turkish economy in recent decades. After a long period of inward-oriented development, Turkish economy began to open to international trade and international investment in 1980. Since then, there has been a good deal of increase in exports, as well as imports. And as a result, you have a lot of businesses, a lot of corporations in Turkey actively seeking markets abroad. And these markets have been in Europe, where Turkey until recently uh, sent about half of its exports. But also, more recently, in the Middle East and in Africa, you have Turkish companies actively seeking uh, markets. There is a, another dimension to this uh, international uh, economic linkages, and that's foreign direct investment. In other words, investment in enterprises abroad. Turkey has received in the last decade a good deal of investment from European companies, but at the same time, Turkish businesses have invested a lot in enterprises in the neighborhood, in Eastern Europe, in Russia, in Northern Iraq, in Middle East, and more recently in Africa. I would argue that these economic linkages 
trade linkages, investment linkages, have begun to influence Turkish economic, Turkish economic policy, but also Turkish foreign policy in the last decade. Turkish foreign policy have been, has been forced to take into account these economic concerns. And of course, many of the businesses involved in exports and also in investment abroad have been supporting AKP since its inception about a decade ago. You could see this very clearly, uh, the influence of economic uh, interests abroad on Turkish foreign policy. In Turkish foreign policy, for example, with respect to northern Iraq, with respect to more recently to Libya, and of course, uh, these economic interests abroad have complicated Turkish foreign policy in the sense that it has become much more difficult, let's say, to pursue a principled foreign policy as a result of these economic interests. For example, the response of the Turkish government to, the, um, to Gaddafi has been for at the, at the early stage of the crisis has been one of silence because the government was much more, was a good deal concerned about the Turkish companies uh, in Libya and thousands of Turkish workers in that country. But then again you could say, well, that is uh, a reflection of the maturing process because after all, many developed countries experience the same complications. Western European countries, United States, also experience an, uh, pressures from its economic interests, and it makes things much more complicated, and much more difficult to um, pursue, uh, say, the same policy say, uh, and consistent foreign policy. And certainly in this respect, Turkish foreign policy today is much more complicated, much more influenced by economic interests <clears throat> than the period of the Cold War when uh, Turkish foreign policy basically observed the big divide between the East and the West and domestic concerns were strongly divorced from foreign policy. Which brings me to my second point about the linkage between domestic politics and foreign policy. As Mick uh, has mentioned, elections last Sunday brought AKP to power for the third consecutive time. Now, it's not often that you get this sort of result, uh, certainly not in Turkish politics. The last time a party won elections three times in a row was in the 1950s. And even then, the Democrat Party in the 1950s had not managed to increase its percentage of the total vote in each of these successive Elections. Now, AKP has succeeded in doing that 
raising its percentage of the vote from 2002 to 2007 and finally this year. And there is no question that this electoral success owes a good deal to the economic and political stability AKP has created since 2002. And there is no question that Turkish foreign policy has benefited from both the economic stability and domestic political stability during the AKP era. Looking ahead, there are now two major and related items in the domestic political agenda. A new constitution and the Kurdish issue. Both the government and the opposition repeatedly refer to these items during the election campaign, one way or another, and domestic political pressures will mean that these two very important issues need to be dealt with. Now, since the election denied AKP the majority it needed to write the new constitution by itself, AKP will now have to cooperate with the other political parties on both of these issues. In his post-election speech Sunday night, Prime Minister Erdogan has promised to consult and cooperate with the opposition. One can only hope that a spirit of cooperation and compromise will prevail, but it will not be easy. The election campaign this year was unusually polarizing, even by Turkish standards. The recent record in domestic politics does not make it easy to be optimistic on this account. The main point, and the final point I would like to make here, is that Turkey's foreign policy, for Turkey's foreign policy to assume a stronger role in the region and behind, beyond, not only economic stability, but political stability at home is essential. How successful Turkey will be in dealing with these two items in the domestic agenda, namely the constitution and the Kurdish issue, will have a very strong impact on, on the success of its foreign policy in the years ahead. On that note, I would like to stop. Thank you very much. Okay, our, our second speaker is uh, Fadi Akura from, uh, from Chatham House. We'll be speaking on uh, the European Union with Turkey, and Turkey and the European Union. Fadi. Uh, thank you very much to Professor Cox for this kind introduction. I'm going to first talk about the state, the current state of, Tur of the EU-Turkey relations as we can see them today. The second part of my speech will be, presentation will be on where these, this relationship is heading and finally, I will come to argue that both sides, uh, both the EU and Turkey, need each other more than ever due to the uh, changing circumstances in the Middle East and North Africa. Now, taking, going to the first part of my uh, presentation, what is the state of the EU-Turkey relationship? To be honest, it is, as everyone can suspect, it is not in a very good state. 
one can best uh, describe it as comatose, neither moving forward nor back or, or backwards, completely deadlocked, uh, no movement in the accession negotiations. If we look at, for example, the number of chapters, that is, these are policy areas that Turkey has to complete before, uh, before being able to uh, join the EU. We have 33 policy areas, only, uh, only 11 have been opened, 18 have been blocked, and three only remain to be opened. 18 blocked because of Cyprus, because of, um, because of France, Austria, Germany, and so on. So it's not in a very good state. Why are these negotiations deadlocked? The first issue, of course, as everyone may know, is Cyprus. The Cyprus issue has been putting a major obstacle in Turkey's path to the EU. Uh, there's ongoing peace negotiations right now in Cyprus, but it, it looks like it's heading towards uh, a gradual collapse. The second reason is France and Germany. Uh, both President Sarkozy of France and Angela Merkel of Germany are both hostile to Turkey's uh, ambitions to join the EU. A good example, uh, President Sarkozy visited Turkey a few months ago for the first time, uh, uh, for a first time for a French head of state to visit Turkey in 18 years. Uh, stayed only five hours in Turkey, did not, uh, did not want uh, much of the Turkish hospitality. Um, and he came, in, he came to Turkey not as the president of France, but as president of the G20. So it was a double insult uh, to Turkey. The third reason is the lack of reform in Turkey. Uh, there's clear indications that since 2005, the reform momentum in Turkey has been uh, slowing down uh, remarkably. If we look at the recent uh, campaign, election campaign uh, in Turkey, we can see that, for example, Prime Minister Erdogan did not go into much detail on reforming, for example, the health care, education, uh, uh, unemployment, inflation, so forth. He talked much more about uh, mega projects, prestige projects, for example, building a city, uh, building two cities in Istanbul, one on the east, one on the European side of Istanbul, one on the, on the Asian side of Istanbul, uh, building a new canal Istanbul which is a big canal that will, uh, that will be uh, basically similar to the path of the Bosphorus, talking about building trains, creating a space agency, a defense industry. So very, very big promises and mega projects, but not much detail on individual, um, on the structural reforms in Turkey. The fourth reason for this slowdown, for the negative relationship between the Turkey and the EU is enlargement fatigue. The EU is tired of further enlargement. They've had enough at least for the time being. They've had major enlargements, uh, uh, enlargements of Eastern Central Europe in the 1990s, uh, and then in 2007 with, um, with, uh, with uh, Bulgaria and Romania, and now they have to handle with the Western Balkans. So there's not a strong uh, motivation, impetus within the EU to, for, a, for, a, uh, for, a viable, uh, for a viable enlargement uh, process. The fifth reason is the ongoing financial crisis in the EU. Uh, Greece is pretty much insolvent. Portugal uh, is also insolvent. You have the so-called pigs country. Uh, Portugal, Italy, Ireland, Greece, and Spain. Those uh, countries are, have uh, some s severe financial insolvency problems, and that's really taxing um, the EU's uh, capacity to deal with other issues such as enlargement. The sixth re uh, reason, I would say, is growing cultural differences between Turkey and the EU. Uh, there is no doubt in Turkey there's growing social conservatism, uh, both by the government and uh, in society, uh, for, on, things on issues such as religiosity, intensity of religious feeling, on gender issues, 
uh, on lifestyle choices, we can see that, uh, whereas in the, in the EU, in, on average, there's a growing trend of secularization of lifestyles uh, in, in Europe. So that's also creating a divergence between, uh, between Turkey and the EU. Now, where is this uh, relationship heading? I think that I'm quite skeptical that Turkey will ever join the European uh, Union. Although still, uh, there's a, still a strong popular support for the EU in Turkey, despite all the negative hostility from France and Germany, Austria and other European countries. Uh, but still, I think it's quite clear that the momentum is lacking. It is in a deadlock. There's a lack of interest uh, in accession, both in Turkey and the um, uh, EU. So I'm quite skeptical that I don't think that Turkey will join the EU at least any time uh, soon. A uh, good example uh, here, to, just to put into perspective, Croatia started accession negotiations with Turkey in October 2005. Uh, Croatia is expected to join the European Union in June 2013. So they started at the same time. Croatia is, uh, is on the cusp of joining the European uh, Union, whereas Turkey has barely opened one third of its chapters uh, it needs to in order to join the European uh, Union. I think that. Uh, from, from going forward, uh, I think that uh, the relationship between Turkey and the EU is, is changing. We can already see that. There, uh, we'll see the cooperation between Turkey and the European Union will be less as a collective, so that Turkey will not be dealing with the EU as a collective entity, but more on an issue-by-issue -issue ad hoc uh, basis. So uh, to take an example, if we take, for example, the issue of Libya, uh, Turkey here is uh, coordinating closely with France, and, uh, and uh, the United Kingdom, together with Washington, uh, with the exclusion of many of the other EU countries in dealing with the, with the uh, problem uh, in Libya. I suspect you'll see more of that in the future, uh, whether it's environmental issues, energy issues, uh, foreign policy issues, regional, international. I think you will see much more cooperation on an issue-by-issue -issue basis, ad hoc, with a, with a small group of European countries, uh, depending on the issue uh, at hand. Uh, very, very revealing was uh, Prime Minister Erdogan's speech uh, after the victory, after the election victory on, the, on uh, Sunday, 12th of June, when he came on the, the so-called balcony speech, when he, came to, uh, on the, when he gave the speech from the balcony of the, uh, on the Akepe headquarters. Uh, during that speech, there was no mention of Europe or EU or West. There was only mention of Islamic countries, Arab countries, and Bosnia, but no mention of Europe, EU, no reference made to the West whatsoever. That seemed to indicate that the growing interest now of Prime Minister Erdogan, as well as Foreign Minister Davutoglu, and the government uh, and the uh, Turkish government, is a greater focus on the Middle East, on the Islamic world, and less attention and focus on uh, Europe uh, in the future. Um, coming to the last part of my presentation, Despite the negative relationship between them, between the Euro Turkey and the European Union, and despite the Turkish government's focus on the Middle East uh, and on the Islamic world and the Arab uh, and Middle East and North Africa, uh, they the, both the EU and Turkey really do need each other more than ever. Uh, they cannot ignore each other for reasons of geography. Uh, Turkey shares a, is on the southern flank of, the, of, the, of Europe. Uh, the fact that uh, they share an enormous amount of trade, cultural links, millions of Turks live in Europe, around 3 million, for example, in Germany. So they really do need uh, each other. Also, Turkey is a member of NATO. So, uh, so 
So at the end of the day, they, they, even if there is not uh, uh, mutual feelings of, uh, of, uh, of support, at least there is, there is that strong imperative to cooperate. Why do they, why do the, why do, what is driving this cooperation, even in the absence of a credible accession process? One, the first uh, is um, the source of foreign direct investment to Turkey. If you look at the source of foreign investment to Turkey, 70% of it comes from Europe. Uh, the technology, know-how, research and development, again, the source uh, uh, comes from Europe. Not from the Gulf Arab region, not from the Caucasus, not from Russia. Uh, not from China, it actually comes from Europe. So Turkey needs Europe in, co in order uh, for reasons of economic, uh, future economic modernization. The third reason is the level of trade. Despite the fact that Turkey has been diversifying its trade uh, with the Middle East, with the Caucasus, with Central Asia, and with Africa, uh, still there's around half of Turkey's trade is with Europe. So Turkey cannot afford to ignore Europe, nor Europe can afford to ignore uh, Turkey. The fourth reason is tur the Turkish military. If you look at across Europe, um, uh, European countries are cutting down, are slashing their uh, military budgets quite uh, drastically. If you see in the UK, uh, David Cameron is slashing the budget here by 8%, whereas Turkey actually is having a, still a, a growing sp uh, military spending, around four to five billion dollars a year uh, spent on new weapons uh, pr procurement. So therefore, uh, Europe needs uh, Turkey's uh, military capabilities, uh, the fact that also Turkey contributes to some important peacekeeping operations, for example, the UN peacekeeping operations in southern Lebanon, uh, as well as in, uh, in Afghanistan, as part of the NATO operations in Afghanistan, and of course Bosnia and Kosovo. The other reason, the fifth reason, is that uh, Turkey is a frontier state. Uh, last year, in June last year, we had Prime Minister, uh, Foreign Minister Davutoglu give a speech at Chatham House. And the main theme of his speech was the fact that Turkey was no longer a frontier state like it was during the period of the Cold War. In the Cold War, if you can recall, go back to the, uh, recall the period of the Cold War, Turkey shared the border at the time, confronted the Soviet Union. The f it was also surrounded by a hostile Iraq, a hostile Syria, which were in the Soviet camp. So at the, at the time, Turkey was seen as a front, frontier state on Europe's southern flank, protecting Europe and the West from potential Soviet uh, aggression. Uh, and, Prime Minister, uh, and Foreign Minister Davutoglu made the comment now that if you look at now the world map today, uh, Turkey is no longer a frontier state because it has good relations with Iran, good relations with Syria, the f and also now the problems are in Afghanistan, Pakistan, the Middle East. So if you put the circle, this Eurasian circle, you'll see that Turkey is in the middle of, the, of all the action, so that Turkey is no longer a frontier state. I disagree. Uh, actually, Turkey, the recent events have shown that Turkey is again a frontier state. If you look at the implosion in Syria, and the fact that now you have 8,000 Syrian refugees uh, in, uh, on, uh, that have crossed the border uh, into eastern Turkey, uh, the fact this shows that Turkey is a frontier state. If you look at the, new, uh, the Iranian nuclear issue, again, Turkey is a frontier state. Uh, NATO, for example, now uh, under the President Obama's plan, under the NATO umbrella, wants to erect a NATO missile defense shield against uh, future Iranian missile threats. Again, who's a, a, key, a, a key component of this missile defense system is Turkey. 
and Turkey has signed up, at least in principle, has signed up to establishing a, a missile defense shield on its territory. So again, this shows that Turkey, again, is a frontier state. Therefore, this, I think, forces the EU, at least to look at Turkey, to cooperate with Turkey as a security buffer against the potential instabilities from the Middle East and North Africa and the Caucasus sp uh, spilling over uh, into uh, Europe. So uh, if you look at um, overall, uh, Turkey, if you look at all these reasons together, Tur both, uh, both need each other uh, 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 enormously. If you look at all the key issues now in the Middle East, whether it's Egypt, uh, whether it's Libya, whether it's Syria, whether it's Iran, whether it's Gulf Arab security, Bahrain, Turkey's role is key. Uh, it is uh, Turkey cannot act on its own unilaterally to solve the Middle East uh, uh, challenges. It gave that impression at times with some of the rhetoric from the government that the Turkey can act on its own, uh, that Turkey can defy gravity in the region and resolve some, some of the big challenges uh, in the Middle East. In fact, uh, that did not turn out to be the case. Where Turkey has real added value is as a facilitator, as a partner. We can see examples of that. For example, uh, to take a good example, was the recent unity agreement between Fatah and Hamas. Uh, there, if you looked at, there was a very good account of how this agreement came about in the uh, in the Independent, and in the account of the Independent newspaper, uh, a, deleg a Palestinian delegation went to. Egypt to meet with the Egyptian foreign minister Nabil al-Arabi and to approach with him the possibility of Egypt re-engaging again in the Middle East to try to bring the two sides uh, together. Nabil al-Arabi, uh, the, uh, the Turkish foreign minister Ahmed Davutoglu happened to be in Cairo at the time so Nabil al-Arabi invited him to the meeting with the Palestinian delegation and from then on a momentum was generated in, in, in bringing that unity agreement between Fatah and Hamas. And there, Turkey's critical role was acting as a facilitator uh, uh, in helping the Egyptians to bring about unity among the Palest uh, Palestinians. So in conclusion, uh, despite the fact that there's a very negative feeling uh, and mutual loathing, I would say, between Turkey and the European Union, the fact that the accession process is pretty much in a stalemate, uh, the fact that Cyprus is, uh, Cypriot peace negotiations are heading to uh, uh, gradually uh, heading to collapse, uh, and, the, and, and the negative, and the, the fact that also Europe is now in the midst of a lot of turmoil with, with the Greek financial, with the, the uh, insolvency of Greece and uh, Portugal and Ireland. Uh, despite all of that, we can see also countervailing factors that force the two parties together uh, that was uh, particularly given the dynamic uh, and uh, unforeseen changes in the Middle East and North Africa. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Fadi. I didn't know whether to cry or to laugh at the end, and in terms of the, uh, the way you described the European relationship, um, it was half empty, uh, half full glass, but largely half empty, I thought. Maybe I could just open up with one question straight away, because you touched on it um, very quickly. In terms of how Turkey perceives what has been happening in uh, the Arab world, since the beginning of this year? Do they see this as opportunity, as threat? Do they see this also, coming back to you, um, Shevket, on 
increasing its independence in terms of pursuit of its foreign policy aims, um, and, and, and does it essentially know what it's doing other than opportunistically or maybe strategically thinking through what it is doing there? Because it would seem to follow from bo both what you said. So maybe if you pick up that one, and then if you follow Shipkep, maybe say some things about that, and then we'll open up for more general Q&A. We've got plenty of time. Yeah, please. Um, uh, Ahmed, the Foreign Minister Ahmed Davutoglu enunciated uh, a principle of zero problems with the neighbors uh, policy that Turkey would, unlike uh, during the period of the Cold War, Turkey would re-emerge in its, uh, in its uh, neighborhood, both in the Caucasus uh, and especially in the Middle East and North Africa. And for a time, uh, things were looking rosy. There was a, a honeymoon period. Turkey, for example, removed uh, visas uh, from a, a number of Arab countries, and, and as well as Iran. Uh, trade was expanding. Turkey had some ambitions to create a free trade zone encompassing uh, Jordan, Lebanon, uh, Syria, and uh, Turkey. So things looked good. But uh, then, sudden, with the eruption of change in the Middle East, uh, starting with Tunisia in December, January of this year, and then Egypt, and the key country here is Egypt, I think that p p uh, really brought a question mark to the whole zero problems with the neighbors uh, policy. If we for, uh, take Libya as an, a, good, a good example, uh, Turkey had good relations with Gaddafi, uh, signed $15 billion of contracts, uh, but now, you, uh, and, and that, uh, as Pre Professor uh, Pamuk uh, explained, uh, Gave, uh, that uh, um, explains why Turkey was a bit reticent in criticizing Gaddafi uh, at the beginning, whereas criticizing uh, uh, ex-President Hosni Mubarak much more forcefully uh, during the Egyptian uh, revolution. At the same time, we can see also the challenge with Syria right now. Uh, the mm. whole strategy with Syria now is, is, is up in smoke. Um, does that mean that uh, zero problems with the neighbor's policy is a bad idea? No, it's not. Uh, it has to be adapted, changed. That's the, that's the risk of doing business with the Middle East. Uh, Middle East is not Europe. It's not European Union. Uh, Middle East things can change in, in one day, in one hour, in one minute. But Turkey will have to adapt. The only thing I would say about Turkish government is that its foreign policy objectives should be, uh, should be explained in a more modest, in, with greater modesty, rather than some of the bombastic language we saw in the, uh, in the earlier uh, uh, times. I basically agree with Fadi that I think uh, the Arab Spring at the end of the day has uh, shown to the Turkish government of the limitations of its foreign policy and limitations of some of the more optimistic announcements about its ability to influence events in the Middle East. Um, certainly Turkish government uh, uh, did not foresee and did not uh, welcome uh, these challenges, um, but, but they show that there are serious limits to Turkey's uh, ability to influence events in the Middle East, uh, uh, influence uh, policies of governments in the Middle East. And I think uh, these events have also shown that Turkey stands to be more influential in the region when it aligns its policies more closely with the European Union and more generally with the West than it when it attempts to go at it alone. Okay, great. Well, that, that kicks us off. I take uh, the first question down here, please. Yeah. 
Thank you very much for a very interesting and illuminating talk. I'd like to raise the question of relation between Turkey and Israel, because historically Turkey distancing itself from its Arab neighbors has been close friendship between Israel and Turkey. Lately there have been a number of strains in this relationship, so could you comment on what are the future implications of the improved relations between the Arab world and Turkey? Thanks very much. Sure. Let's just go in order. Okay. Yes, um, the, my sense is that Turkey's relations with Israel are going through a difficult patch and both, both sides are responsible for this recent uh, deterioration. Uh, uh, but I suspect that uh, in the near future, there will be some recovery of this relationship. Obviously, Turkish-Israeli relations will not go back easily, will not go back to the, their status, say, about three, uh, three years ago. But there will be some recovery. And I think uh, just as in the case of Arab Spring, Turkish government is come to the realization that uh, Turkey's influence in the Middle East, Turkey's ability to exert itself in the Middle East is associated, is greater when Turkey uh, is close to both sides rather than to, to uh, the Arab Middle East to the exclusion of Israel. Uh, so I expect some reversal of the recent trends. And I would expect the same applies to, to uh, the government in Israel. And I think Tur this, uh, some improvement uh, in Turkey-Israeli relations will be beneficial for the Arab countries in the region, as they want Turkey to be a facilitator in the conflict. And, and the Arab countries do need Turkey to be a facilitator in the conflict. Uh, it's very important to know that the overall direction of Turkish-Israeli relations uh, depend very much on what happens regionally in the Middle East. It depends on the regional dynamics in the Middle East. During the 1990s, when there was a flowering of relations between Turkey and Israel, there was the, uh, there was the optimism over the Oslo peace uh, process between the Palestinians and the Israelis, uh, between uh, the opening of negotiations between Israel and Syria, uh, and Israel and, uh, and Lebanon. And Jordan, of course, Israel and Jordan. So there was that optimism, and that allowed uh, Turkey it allowed the relations to flower. But and then in the 2000s, I think they began to again, as the regional conditions uh, headed south again, with the launch of the Second Intifada in the late uh, in 1999, in September 1999, uh, with the Israeli encroachment in West Bank and Gaza, uh, and and so forth, and then the war between Hezbollah and uh, Israel in 2006. We, we, it was not, no surprise that uh, those relations began to uh, deteriorate. Uh, so it's very much tied. What happens between Turkey and Israel at the end ultimately depends on what happens, how the regional conditions are in the Middle East. How, did they how, how has Israel responded to the diplomatic role or lack of diplomatic <coughs> role which some believe it played in bringing Hamas and Fatah together? My, my reading of the Israeli press is pretty minimal, but I thought they were 
superior and angry about this uh, new coalition of the willing. Uh, no? I mean, uh, is it, and this will be long-term, and this is going to have some pretty long-term consequences for the way that Israel perceives Turkey, won't it? In a, in a slightly more negative direction than you're yeah. suggesting. That's what... But I think the big change for Israel's position in the region was really the beginning of the Arab Spring. Yeah. And the big changes in Egypt is really has changed and undermined Israel's position in the region, not so much Turkey's facilitation yeah. of, of the two factions in Palestine. Uh, yeah. One thing that's also very interesting is the uh, nature of the Israeli... Sit back from the... Uh, is, better microphones now, it seems. Yeah. Um, a very interesting point is the nature of the Israeli and Turkish governments. If you look, actually, they're actually quite similar in many uh, respects. Uh, for example, both are very nationalistic, uh, both are very conservative, and both are very uh, willing to fight for the interests of their uh, countries. So it makes compromise between them that much more uh, difficult. You can see the rhetoric also, both sides also, at the time, especially in 2008, uh, 2009 and 10, engaged in some silly rhetoric, for example, with the Israeli uh, deputy foreign minister seating the Turkish ambassador in the lower chair uh, and then not putting the Turkish flag, and the, and the rhetoric from the Turkish government was equally uh, tough. So that makes compromise between both governments uh, that much more difficult. Okay, uh, there's a lady up there who's got the microphone in her hand. Yes, thank you. Uh, I'd like you, uh, if possible, please, to elaborate on the relationship between Turkey and Iran, if you may. Um, on the one hand, you talked about relations being very good. On the other hand, uh, Turkey having signed up to being part of the U.S. missile shield against Iran. Um, how seriously does Turkey take uh, what, is what is talked about by the neocons in particular as a, a nuclear threat posed by Iran. How, how seriously does Turkey take that supposed threat? Uh, I'll take the Turkey-Iran question, but I'll come down here to the gentleman um, now with the microphone in his hand. Chris. Um, yeah, I'd just like to ask both speakers if they could um, discuss a little bit um, one of the factors that, that wasn't mentioned um, affecting uh, Turkish foreign policy, which is the Prime Minister um, and his personality, or perhaps ego. Um, it seems to me there's a bit of a, a contradiction or a paradox about Turkey's foreign policy at the moment, which is on the one hand they have this zero problems with neighbours, but on the other hand you have uh, Erdogan's uh, desire to be widely liked, especially in the Arab and Muslim world. Um, and you're seeing sort of this, uh, particularly at the moment in Syria, where you've got a lot of protesters on the streets and definitely in the refugee camps now who are shouting Erdogan's name because they expect him to do something because he's put himself forward as this champion of sort of the Muslim world in recent years. Now, that doesn't really correlate with sort of a, a realist... Uh, uh, foreign policy. So my question is whether or not you see uh, Erdogan as sort of uh, an asset or perhaps a liability to uh, Turkish foreign policy in the long term. He's just won a third election, so there you go. <laughs> Sounds like an asset to me. There you go. Do you want to do Iran or do you want to do the personality of your Prime Minister? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let me go very briefly uh, and I'm, then I'm going to let... Uh, handle these. Um, um, because, well, both of these are difficult questions, but also these are very difficult questions for Turkish government, ultimately. Uh, 
Um, Turkey wants to pursue more friendly relations in, with Iran because of growing economic linkages, but also because Iran, after all, is in the neighborhood, and, any gro and the growth of tensions with Iran will have first its adverse effect on Turkey. But I would say that there is also the realization that there are limits to how, how independent you can be in this area. And uh, growing independence with respect to Iran, policy towards Iran, has its costs elsewhere. And I think, uh, just as is the case with respect to Middle East, there is a growing realization that independence brings its costs with it. I, with respect to the Prime Minister, let me just say that it certainly makes things more complicated. <laughs> cool, a diplomatic answer. Do you want to end there? That's, uh, <laughs> it and makes things, I'm sure, more challenging. That's even more diplomatic than the previous statement. <laughs> I, I quit I while you're ahead. I think that's the... Uh, We'll hand over the tough one then to a colleague from Chatham House. Uh, well, Turkey and Iran, first of all, Turkey has signed up, at least in principle, to the NATO missile defense shield, at least in principle. Uh, as for Turkey and Iran, uh, there was a, a sudden improvement of <coughs> relations between Turkey and Iran, in the, especially following the uh, American, the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2002, uh, 2003. So... So there was a sudden, but I've always argued that that relationship was an alliance of convenience rather than a strategic alliance. Uh, what happened was that there was converging interests, starting off with Iraq. Both, for example, Iran and Turkey did not want to see an independent Kurdistan in northern Iraq. Uh, both wanted uh, America to leave the neighborhood. Both wanted a stable, unified, uh, centralized Iraq. So that brought the two sides uh, together. Uh, but, I, but if you look at more closely, Iran, I don't think, ever trusted uh, Turkey. If you look at all the major economic uh, projects between Turkey and Iran, they never came to fruition. For example, uh, Turk Telecom in 2004, I believe, which is uh, equivalent of uh, Vodafone here, uh, one, uh, managed to win a second, uh, to win a tender to build a second GSM license, uh, to, uh, to build a second GSM network in Iran, a second cell uh, mobile network, and was given, I think, 75% of the overall equity. Uh, but then the conservatives in the Iranian parliament uh, reduced it down to 10% eventually, and then Iran, uh, then Turkey withdrew. You look at the gas and oil projects, there have been a lot of agreements, uh, memorandums of, uh, of understanding signed between Turkey and Iran to cooperate in energy, etc., but, but none of them have been actually implemented. So, and I think it's Iran preventing Turkey from having a big stake in what Iran considers, the Iranian government considers strategic sectors of its economy due to its mistrust of uh, Turkey. And I don't think that's completely wrong. If you look recently, for example, over Bahrain, Turkey has sided with Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Arab states rather than Iran. If you look at Syria, for instance, uh, now that relationship between uh, Prime Minister Erdogan and President Bashar al-Assad has pretty much deteriorated, and, he's and Turkey is increasingly siding with the uh, Syrian opposition, especially the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood. So we can see that uh, gradually Turkey is moving towards the Sunni bloc, despite all the initial rapprochement between Turkey and Iran and Turkey 
uh, and uh, Syria. And I, I suspect that will continue unless there are new uh, circumstances emerged that bring the two sides again uh, together. As for Prime Minister Erdogan's personality, uh, that's a tough one. Um, Prime Minister Erdogan, is, he, he conducts foreign policy by instinct. He does not like, uh, he, likes, he does things by he does politics by instinct. And his instincts are very, very successful. At least he knows what the average Turkish voter wants, wants to hear, what policies they want, especially the Anatolian base of the Turkish uh, prime minister. Uh, also, foreign policy-wise, it has been sometimes a success and sometimes not so much successful. If we look at Egypt and, uh, uh, and Tunisia, the, Turk, uh, Turkish, uh, the Turkish prime minister's instincts were absolutely correct. When nine days into the Egyptian revolution, he, called, he told Mubarak to leave. I think the first international leader to tell Mubarak to go. And his instincts served him right. But then if you look at Libya, I think there we can see question marks uh, um, uh, emerge. Very interesting to note is that uh, uh, the Turkish Prime Minister, if you look at recently a Pew Research, a very well-known uh, institute in, uh, in America that does polling on uh, foreign policy issues, uh, found that uh, the Turkish Prime Minister was extremely popular in the Arab world, but not so, but not so popular in uh, Europe. I suspect that popularity will start to be tested as the expectations of uh, Prime Minister Erdogan <coughs> are get higher and higher, but perhaps that he will not be able uh, to meet them. Thanks very much. Uh, there's a question down here. The people examining the microphone rather than speaking into it. Right. I think, and, yeah, I think and, uh, that's uh, working. A lady at the back, so I'll take two together. Good. Yeah, I'll, I'll go. Yeah, please. So you spoke about uh, Turkey's uh, discussions with the European Union. I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about what Turkey would like to gain through full membership of the European Union. Looked at not just from the economic point of view, which I think I'd like to hear your views on, but also from the political point of view. Okay, and then the lady over here, please. Yeah. My question would be what your thoughts are on the Istanbul International Financial Center. Um, obviously, it's a very ambitious plan um, that uh, touches lots of uh, aspects in the capital markets, but we've seen Dubai trying to become an international financial center, Casablanca has ambitions, other markets in the region as well. So I would be interested to hear whether you think it's a realistic project or if it's one of the prestige, prestige projects of the Prime Minister. Yeah. We'll just take those two together, yeah. Okay, all right. Well, until recently, if you asked Turks about the benefits of membership in the European Union, they would think they would tell you first economic prosperity. Um, that's perhaps because Turks until recently, and even today most Turks, have not given much thought to what it means to be part of the European Union, what it means to be European. Um, there is no question that membership in the EU will bring economic benefits. Perhaps these economic benefits will be somewhat less today or somewhat less in the Turkish case than in the cases of other enlargement countries in the past because Turkey is such a large country. And obviously today's European Union's fiscal capacity is sharply lower. But there are those economic benefits nonetheless. I think the 
greater benefit um, is really consolidation of Turkey's democracy and strengthening of its political institutions. And ultimately, that is the goal, I think, uh, for that is the benefit for both today, for both Turkey's government and Turkey's opposition. That is the major benefit of membership in the European Union. And of course, a stronger democracy will also mean greater economic prosperity if and when that membership comes. I think the, the delicate issue here is, would be, since it is not really realistic to expect Turkey to become a full member anytime soon, the, 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 the skillful thing to do would be to keep Turkey on track and to continue to improve Turkey's institutions, especially political institutions, even without membership. I think those would, that would bring in those kinds of benefits without membership. Uh, with respect to Istanbul as a financial center in the region, um, obviously that kind of financial center needs to be backed up by economic power, that Istanbul and more generally the Turkish economy needs to be a regional hub, needs to develop its economic linkages with the region and also with Europe. And I would say in the last three decades there has been a good deal of that. Uh, so certainly, say compared to three decades ago, Istanbul is a much stronger candidate today for that kind of role than it was, say, in the 1980s. But I, it, will, it will depend on continuation and further development of these ties before it can happen. I think it, you, you can't really say that I will become a hub. You need to back it up with your economic linkages. Funny. I have nothing further to add to what Professor Pamuk said on Turkey and uh, the EU membership. On the second issue of the Istanbul, as Istanbul is a financial center, I'd like just to broaden that question. You, uh, the, you kindly mentioned that, uh, that uh, Morocco or Casablanca might be a future competitor. I think it's not so much Morocco or Dubai or Qatar or these. The real uh, competitive threat to Turkey is Egypt. Uh, Egypt, in terms of its population, its geography, it's the fact that it can, if it can get its act together, it can develop its private sector uh, following the decay uh, during, of the uh, Mubarak years, then Egypt can be a very tough economic and uh, competitor of, uh, of uh, Turkey. Uh, for example, if you look at the construction sector, where Turkey is pretty much dom uh, a big player in the Middle East, uh, if Egypt, uh, Egypt also has a quite a good constru uh, construction uh, sector. Uh, so if it can get it, it can effectively then compete against Turkey um, uh, in the future. I think also as a finance uh, uh, center, if Egypt also gets its act together, it can be a real, uh, a real comp competitor to Turkey's uh, ambitions. And we can also see that in foreign policy. Uh, when President Mubarak was still in power, he, he adopted a, res a very restrained uh, Egyptian foreign policy. Egypt was absent, uh, pretty much absent in the Middle East and North African scene. This created a very big uh, a, a, a space and a vacuum for Prime Minister Erdogan and Foreign Minister Davutoglu 
to inject Turkey's influence in that space. But now with the removal of uh, President uh, Mubarak, we can see now a much more assertive Egyptian uh, foreign policy. That space and vacuum has pretty much uh, disappeared. Uh, we'll find that in Egypt, that will not allow, I think, Turkey to dominate the region. You will see an Egypt that will be as forceful in promoting its foreign policy as Prime Minister Erdogan and Foreign Minister Davutoglu are in promoting Turkey's foreign policy. Thanks very much. There's a gentleman at the back there in the blue shirt and there's a, a lady over here. I'll take those two, and then I'm going to move up to the balcony because I don't want to be accused of discriminating against balcony people. What, what kind of constitution do you think it's likely that Turkey will end up with now? Uh, presumably, uh, Prime Minister Erdogan will not be able to ram through a strong presidency as he reputedly wanted, uh, a position which he would have then occupied himself. Uh, and this has serious implications for his own uh, long-term political career, though it may have very beneficial implications for uh, Turkey's democracy. Uh, will he try to do a Putin? Um, and how do you think the constitution will end up? Will it end up basically as now um, a predominantly parliamentary constitution? Okay, that's one question. Will he become Putin? And Lady here, please. Okay, um, good evening. Uh, I would like to raise the idea that, uh, you know, there is this growing concern um, uh, in Western political circles that Turkey is shifting away from um, the West. Uh, do you know that, do you think that uh, the AKP's uh, foreign policy focus on the Middle East uh, confirms this idea and what uh, would be the impact on EU-Turkey relation, maybe? Okay, that's pretty clear. Yeah. Um, do you want to go first? Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you could sit back, I know, I know I, I'm keeping it boring. I'm still like, it's okay, it's okay. Yeah, You're excited question. and so am I, but keep away from that microphone, it's going to kill us. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'll take those two questions first, yeah, Chevy. Okay. With respect to the Constitution, um, although the election outcome is clear that AKP has not won the majority it sought, I think that there may be experiments, there may be attempts in the future about uh, still designing a Constitution uh, which gives greater powers to the pre to the president. I think that agenda has not been eliminated. I think what kind of uh, a new constitution will emerge, whether a new constitution will emerge, will depend on the degree of cooperation and compromise between the government and the opposition. As I said in my remarks, what has transpired during the election campaign doesn't make me very optimistic about that kind of cooperation and compromise. Okay. Uh, it was a very difficult, a very uh, divisive campaign. Okay. Um, and I should also uh, add that <clears throat> the new constitution will inevitably have provisions about the Kurdish issue. So the two are, are closely linked. Um, that uh, Kurdish issue is probably more important issue than, or as important as writing a new constitution, a more liberal, more democratic co constitution for Turkey. It is 
a very important uh, question for Turkey. So these are hugely difficult questions, and it will not be easy to tackle them. It will not be easy to make progress unless there is a spirit of cooperation and compromise. And I, I, it's very difficult to say what will happen un until we see that uh, mm. spirit of cooperation and compromise. With regard to the question of Turkish pol foreign policy, whether Turkish foreign policy is shifting away from the uh, West, um, I think it's, it's really a, a cliché. And uh, as Fadi has uh, emphasized, I think uh, although at earlier stages Turkish foreign policy appeared to be shifting away from the uh, West, I think both sides recognize that even without a clear-cut perspective of membership, they both need, need each other, and each side will be more effective with the other than without the other. Hmm. Uh, on the issue of the Constitution, I think the parties are very, very far apart on what they would like to see what, to, uh, what clauses they would like to see in the Constitution. If we take the pro-Kurdish Peace and Democracy Party, that also had a, quite a significant uh, victory in the elections, they would like to see, for example, Kurdish, uh, Kurdish becoming an official language in Turkey, to have Kurd Kurdish taught in schools in uh, Turkey. They would like to see also uh, in, uh, what they call democratic autonomy, which essentially means uh, the federal, the creating a federal state in Turkey, that is the devolution of power from the center to the to the local, to the municipalities and the provinces. Uh, I think that uh, no major Turkish party supports that. Neither the uh, the uh, center-left Republican People's Party, nor the uh, Justice and Development Party, and nor the na nor do the Turkish nationalists accept that. So that's one. Also, between the Republican People's Party and the uh, and the uh, AKP. There's also some enormous differences. For example, uh, if you look at the institution of the Dianet, which is uh, loosely translated as the Religious Directorate's Office. This is an office that regulates religion in Turkey. It comes under the control of the Prime Minister, has a very, very big budget. The officers of the, of the office uh, constitute uh, as uh, civil servants of the state. And there, for example, the Republican People's Party want to downgrade the role uh, of the uh, of the uh, Dianet, the AKP does not. The Republican People's Party want to make religion classes in schools optional. At the moment, they are uh, obligatory under, in, uh, under the Turkish Constitution. Uh, but the, the Republican People's Party want to make it op uh, optional. That's not acceptable, neither to the nationalists, it seems, and definitely not acceptable to the Justice and Development Party. So there's not much common ground, at least on the core issues of, of, a, of a future Turkish constitution. As for shift away from the West, I think this is becoming increasingly an outmoded, uh, redundant, and sterile debate. Uh, we can see there is a global shift of power and power balances. We can see the rise of China, the rise of India, uh, the rise of Brazil. Whether they will super, supersede the United States in the future or not is another debate, but at least they are rising up economically, politically. Uh, so does Brazil constitute East or West? I don't know. Does, wh what about China? What about India? India is a democracy, the largest democracy in the world. Does it constitute East or West? So Turkey is, what's happening in Turkey in part is reflecting the global, uh, the global power, sh uh, 
the global shifts in the power balances. Um, now, secondly, the collapse of the Cold War. It was natural for Turkey to re-engage with the Middle East, with North Africa, with the Caucasus, with Central Asia, with Russia. Why shouldn't it do so? That's part of the strengths of Turkish geography. Its strategic geography dictates that it cooperates and not just with, and, and focuses just on one continent, but tries to cooperate with its neighborhood. Uh, and not just neighborhood, its neighborhoods. Now, what, uh, perhaps there can be some criticism that, per, that maybe the Turkish government is putting too much emphasis on the Middle East at the expense of Europe. But let's also look on the other side. Europe is also, uh, ha has not been really treating Turkey as a partner in the, in the, in the relationship. So it goes, it's both sides. One shouldn't just complain that Turkey is moving away from Europe. Europe has also been moving away from Turkey. So I, I think both, both sides are at fault, not, Turkey's, uh, not Turkey alone. Thanks very much. There's a lady up there with the microphone and uh, a gentleman here. Yes, the lady first and then, yeah, please. And then I'll come back downstairs, yeah. Yes, um, we have talked a lot about the Turkey in relationship with the EU and the Middle East. Um, I would like to, um, you know, given that the uh, Asian um, countries, the continent, uh, the economy is quite strong at the moment, and China as well, if you have just um, said, I would like to know um, your view on um, how Turkey see Asian country, especially China. Okay, thanks. And uh, yeah. Uh, well, my question will be a little bit similar because, for the most part, the uh, uh, focus has been on Turkey's relationship with Middle East and also a little bit like re reading the Turkish foreign policy from a religious perspective. But given some scholars call it like new Turkish degolism, and when you look at it like a couple of days ago, the uh, military drills between Turkey, uh, Turkey and China, the photo regarding the military drill uh, between Turkey and China has been released to the press, and like Turkey has just signed the visa-free travel with uh, Russia and uh, intensifying cooperation with countries like Serbia. Looking from this perspective, uh, don't you think that it would be much more uh, realistic to call Turkish foreign policy as going from to the direction of what we can say, like you know, the direction of De Gaulle in 1960s? Okay, right. Mm. Turkey and China, and is Turkey becoming France? Uh, in the okay. 1960s, uh, in, in the 1960s at least. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a period of uh, wobble between the Turkish-Chinese relationship at the time of the, the, uh, the, upri the uprisings in the Uyghur regions, the Turkic-Chinese uh, uh, Turkic, uh, citizens of Turkic descent. So there was a wobble, there was a tough statement from Prime Minister Erdogan, a one-off statement. But overall, the, ch the relationship is quite good. Uh, for example, Turkey and China uh, want, have agreed to increase their uh, uh, bilateral trade to $50 billion uh, by 2015. So, uh, there's also some, uh, at least, talk of uh, having to rebuild a, 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 um, a rail, uh, the railway along the Silk Road all the way from Turkey to uh, China, across the Central Asia, uh, and the uh, across the Caucasus, Central Asia, then to China. So overall, the relationship uh, is good. There is also common understanding on issues such as Iran. Both Turkey and China do not want to see a military conflict uh, or any military operations against uh, Iran. Uh, there is also common agreement, at least on Syria, uh, on Libya, 
So generally, the relationship is quite good. Where there is, uh, where there is competition is in the ec economic field. Uh, China does compete uh, quite strongly in many of the areas that Turkey competes in. For example, textiles, uh, apparel, low-tech manufacturing. Um, but, uh, but that is manageable. Overall, I think the relationship is, is, is good and proceeding well. As for Turkey following a de, Gaulle, a de Gaullist foreign policy, uh, Americans followed a de Gaullist foreign policy. They also followed their, uh, based on national interests. So did the French, they still do. Uh, Britain also to some extent. Um, so why not Turkey? Turkey is very protective of its national uh, sovereignty, but I think it's, uh, but at the same time, it's willing to cooperate where it, it uh, increases its influence around the world. Take, for example, NATO. Uh, defense uh, and security is a very, very sensitive area for any country uh, to share sovereignty with other countries. But there, Turkey does has sh shared that, that its, sovereign, its sovereignty on defense uh, in NATO for the last 50, 60 years. So it's quite natural for Turkey to pursue a foreign policy based it on what it considers its uh, national interest. I think uh, these two questions are really very similar in the sense that uh, um, there has been a significant shift in Turkey's relations with the rest of the world over the last two decades. Think about the, the era of the Cold War when Turkey's foreign policy was really dictated by the East-West divide. And it was also at the same time that Turkey's economy was inward-oriented and Turkey really didn't care very much about what, it, what happened beyond its borders. Well, obviously, things have changed since. Uh, Turkish economy is stronger, more stable, and Turkish businesses have a much greater awareness. They are much more active, at least in the neighborhood and beyond. Okay? And uh, Turkish foreign policy is learning to deal with this new world post-Cold War world also, a world where the economy is stronger, which gives Turkish foreign policy makers greater room for maneuver. And I think this is, in, in many ways, this is a very early period for Turkey, coming to terms with these new possibilities, opportunities, but also limitations. And I think, inevitably, there will be a lot of trial and error during the process. There will be overly optimistic uh, statements and announcements about Turkey's capacity to change things in its neighborhood and beyond. But I think there will also be some learning by doing. And I think that ties both of these questions together. It applies to, to China and also to this the question of more independent foreign policy. Okay, I've got one question here, and then I've got a gentleman over here first, second, then I'll come back up to the balcony, please, yeah. I have an interest in migration issues, and one of the things that Sarkozy and Merkel are noted for is strong opposition to migration, and this somehow transfers over into Turkey, in that they're trying to accommodate more of that far-right vote, which is rather wary of foreigners, as it were. Do you think that when Merkel and Sarkozy eventually leave and perhaps more left-leaning parties enter the European power scene, that European accession will be 
on the table once more in a way that it is not at the moment with these conservative leaders. Okay, right. When Nick and Angela go, uh, and gentlemen there, please. Just as I find it absolutely amazing that you can get through a, an hour and a half of discussion without heavily involving uh, Islam and the thought that Turkey will or could have a role with as an intermediary between between Europe and uh, the um, Islamic countries. Really. Yeah. That, that's one thing. And secondly, this is really quite a factor because I have a friend who is quite a, has been quite an important person in France and he goes apoplectic practically when this idea of uh, Turkey joining the common market is put forward. And I think while people like this govern policy, then uh, this is going to have a major effect in France and Germany. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I think we did deal with the Israel issue. It's one of the questions from down, from down here. We can, you can maybe take up the question of public opinion in uh, France or Germany or elsewhere about accession to the European Union and also connect that to the migration question as well, perhaps. Um, the migration question, of course, is one that worries the European public opinion most about Turkey's membership or what, one of those issues that is of greatest concern. Um, it is interesting that all, with respect to this issue, Turkish governments since the 1970s have always agreed to have exceptions, derogations, that they have agreed that, that if Turkey ever becomes a member of the EU, that Turkish governments will accept periods of restriction on labor mobility, just as the EU has done this to other uh, re enlargement countries like Poland. But there is also something else um, that most Europeans are not fully aware of. Just as the European Union is getting older, people in the European, European populations are getting older, Turkish population is getting all older. And in a few decades, uh, most Turks will be too old, will be well beyond the age where they will be, be inclined to migrate, move around. Okay? So that uh, uh, this changing age structure of the Turkish population, combined with the fact that Turkish economy is experiencing growth, that Turkish incomes are gradually but converging towards EU averages, means that in a few decades, and certainly in a few, nobody expects full membership and full labor mobility for Turkey during the next few decades, by that time, very few Turks will be, in a, will be in a position or will be willing to migrate. So I think it, in many ways it's a non-issue. 
But in the short term, I think this issue, this fear, is certainly uh, keeping the European Union, uh, uh, European public at least, strongly opposed to Turkey's membership. And will it, and will it change if, if and when Sarkozy uh, or Merkel are no longer are no longer in charge and well i think a lot more has to change than the government it seems to me because right now european <clears> union <throat> is concerned about much more longer term issues about mm. debt economic stagnation and so on all of those have to change it seems to me before issues of turkey's membership will be taken seriously in the in the in european union mm. Uh, well, to, to come to the issue of if left-wing parties start to dominate the political scene in Europe in the next four years, will that um, uh, accelerate or at least re-energize re uh, re the Turkish-EU relationship? I think that uh, if you look at the French Socialist Party, it is less strident in its opposition to Turkey's membership of the European Union. It's definitely compared to Sarkozy's language and posture and uh, theatrics, uh, far less... Um, Strident, but still, I think you can see hints of skepticism of Turkish uh, among in the French Socialist Party, for example, of Turkey's membership of the Euro European Union. Of all the major uh, French socialist politicians who endorsed Turkey's membership of the European Union, was only one. It was Dominique Strauss-Kahn. Mm. Uh, mm. When he ran for the leadership uh, of the Socialist Party a few years ago, he was the only one to in in the debates, leadership debates, to publicly state his complete strong support of Turkey's membership of the European Union. None of the other socialist leaders uh, did that. Uh, similarly, if you look at the Socialist Party in Austria, it is deeply opposed to Turkey's membership of the European Union. So is the Green Party in Austria also opposed, deeply opposed. In Germany, the elite, uh, the leadership of the uh, socialist, uh, the SPD, the Socialist Democratic Party in Germany, favors, but its rank and file is quite hostile to Turkey's membership of the uh, European uh, Union. That's thanks to the, at least the visionary uh, leadership of uh, Joschka Fischer and, um, and uh, Schroeder on the accession uh, of Turkey's accession to the European uh, Union. So at the same time also as a final uh, thought is it a relationship that, uh, that does not have much momentum in the beginning and in the middle. I, don't th I think it will become extremely difficult mm. to re-energize it in the future. And the key point also is that Turkey itself is losing interest mm. in the European Union. And recovering that interest may be a very, very challenging task in the future. Thanks. I've got two very last quick questions. Sorry, <laughs> I just have to take them. the gentleman and the lady. Yeah. Take the gentleman first and the lady, and then we'll conclude. Yeah, please, sir. Thank you. Um, I can see there are good, but very, there seems to be good potential possibilities and opportunities for Turkey. Mm. Uh, but Turkey is facing use the, use the mic. Yeah. Uh, Turkey is facing challenges from everywhere. Yeah. Now the main two, two challenges Turkey faces is one is from the Islamic world and from the from the EU. This puts Turkey in a very difficult situation. How do you think Turkey can deal with this situation without losing its ties with the Muslim world and the EU? Okay. And then Thank you. Thank you very much. And then one, just be the last one, please. Yeah. 
yes, my question is uh, about Turkey's, uh, if the panel has any comment about Turkey's soft power of public diplomacy, because you have mentioned that the Arab Spring showed the limitations of Turkish government in its foreign policy. I'm just wondering what the panel has to say about its soft power or whether it has any soft power in the Middle East. Okay, soft power and uh, potential yeah. conflict between I, the Yeah, two. I think uh, these two questions uh, are, also, are, are also similar. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, Turkey has if it positions itself well, if it doesn't overestimate its capacity, Turkey can be a facilitator between Is Middle East, Islamic Middle East, and the European Union, having strong relations with both. I think ideally that's what Turkish foreign policy is trying to achieve. And I think this soft power is not related, is not limited to foreign policy. I think this soft power can be supported, should be supported by economic linkages. I think. So my sense is that um, as Turkey's relations with the European Union cool a little bit, Turkey is using, ideally, Turkey could use this as an opportunity to diversify its linkages in its neighborhood without really um, uh, hurting its ties with the European Union. That should be the, that should be the ideal. But this, after all, I think these recent few years has been a period of learning in this respect about Turkey not only about its limitations of its capacity, but also learning from its mistakes as it uh, perhaps overestimates what it can do in this area or in that area or what the rest of the world can do. For example, I think the Arab Spring has shown Turkey that uh, it's wanting to wish to have no problems. It's another thing to have actually no problems, that sometimes your neighbors have problems and it's, Turkey is not in a position to influence them or convince them to pursue certain kinds of policies. So this is a period, I think, in many ways, a healthy period of learning. Uh, I would just add that perhaps there was uh, too much expectation of the, out, of the impact of Turkish soft power and multifaceted foreign policy on the Middle East. But I think it was, it was a good idea, and it still is a good idea. If you look at, for example, uh, Turkey's relations with the, northern, the Iraqi regional government of northern Iraq, for instance, soft power there has worked well. Turkey has a, a burgeoning trade with northern Iraq. Uh, Turkey has growing cultural links, uh, trade and investment. So uh, it, it's, a good, it was a, it's a good idea. Also, what Turkey tried to achieve with Syria, with Jordan, uh, with Russia, lifting visa restrictions is also a good idea. Increased trade, people-to-people uh, con -people contact, uh, tourism, investment is always a good idea. And I think it's something that the Middle East countries should learn. For example, if we see what, how Bahrain is being handled at the moment, 
as a security issue rather than uh, as a security issue, especially by the Gulf Arab states, I think they could learn something from Turkey to try to use soft power and ideas of soft power to 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 deal with the problems in in uh, Bahrain, for uh, uh, for instance. We can also see now Egypt is uh, also learning from Turkish foreign policy. How Egypt in the post Mubarak era is now using soft power vis-a-vis -vis Hamas. It has uh, opened the border permanently. It now uh, allows, for example, men over the age of 40 to enter Egypt without visas. The procedures, which used to take 12, uh, 10 hours to cross the border, it now takes one and a half hours to cross the border. So again, these are ideas that Turkey pioneered in the region, and now the other powers, such as Egypt, are learning from. Okay, thank you very much. I think we'll uh, draw the proceedings to a conclusion. Um, as you can see from the numbers that have turned up here tonight, the interest in this topic is, is, is vast, uh, and uh, certainly here at the LSE, and certainly Ideas wants to further promote uh, discussion around these key questions. I, I thought it was a very interesting event for all sorts of reasons, uh, but, but two in particular struck me. Not one mention of Atatürk, um, which is really quite remarkable. It may show how things have changed in the world, maybe changing in Turkey, I don't know. And not one question on the United States, which may tell us more about American decline than it does about our audience. But anyway, uh, a quick reminder again, sorry to be the entrepreneur, but that's what we're supposed to do here at the LSE, uh, about Turkey's global strategy. A snip at five pound, and the editor, Nick Kitchen, promises he will actually sign it, and it will therefore be only four pound. But anyway, uh, thanks to Nick Kitchen for doing the great editorship on that, and thanks to all the contributors. It's a terrific, it is a terrific special report. Uh, and, and not surprisingly, it's been very well timed with the election and this event this evening. Finally, just to say thank you to our two speakers tonight, Shevchek uh, Pamuk and Fadi Hakur, for a fantastic presentation.